Here be dragons. Anybody ever heard that before? Here be dragons. This is what medieval map makers would write on the edges of their maps where land and sea was left unexplored. Everybody would see this. You remember looking at those old medieval maps and had those monsters everywhere? Those weren't decorative things. Those were people, those were illustrations of wild beasts and wild monsters symbolizing the unknown territories of ancient maps and charts. Here be dragons. I don't know why they're pirate voice, but I'm just assuming they are. (laughs) Church, this morning, the book of Hebrews sets course for those unexplored areas. Those dimensions where our deepest and darkest secrets are surfaced and brought to the light of day where our conscience is pricked and our hearts are inflamed and our hidden sins are laid bare. And all dragons within our lives are ripped out from hiding. Now, if you were like me when I was studying for this, I was was thinking, ew. Like, I don't want any of that to happen in my life. Who does? It's for the the ability, it's, it's for the purpose of rest. These dragons must be ripped out. We must go into those territories for the purpose of rest. So as many of you know, and if you don't, I'll fill you in, but we've been in a, just a teeny little small series on rest through the book of Hebrews, specifically chapter four. And what we've been seeing is that basically it's a cautionary tale. It's a cautionary tale where our author, who we call the stranger, and some people get annoyed by that, whatever, well, we call him the stranger because he's a mystery, because he's outrageously brilliant, because he's wild, because he's like the Shel Silverstein of the New Testament. He's crazy. Anybody remember looking at the back of Shel Silverstein covers? Remember reading that book as a kid and you turn it over and you're like, oh, mama. Did anybody remember? Nobody had that reaction? It's like, this guy should not be writing kids' books. Anyway, but we have no idea who their author is and it's gonna stay that way. He is a stranger. And this stranger, this author, this author in chapter four has been issuing this, this warning. He's been comparing the condition of the Hebrews in his day with the first century Hebrews. Basically, he's going generation with generation. The first generation who decided not to believe God, and now the author, the stranger's audience, who are tempted to do the same thing. So in a lot of ways, this is a cautionary tale for both Christians, just as much as it is for those who aren't in this room. So if you're here and you're curious about the Christian faith, I highly encourage to listen ever so. Condensed down to... God, we don't trust you. Both of them. God, we do not trust you. God, we don't believe what you've told us. God, we do not believe your word. And the stranger says, if that is our heart's direction, we will not have or know rest in this life or the life to come, period. So Hebrews 4 has been saying, wake up. Hebrews 4 says, wake up. And as I've warned from the beginning, there is nothing calming about the book of Hebrews, just so everybody kind of remembers that. Nobody here is supposed to like the book of Hebrews. We're not supposed to like it. Hebrews isn't supposed to be relaxing. It's not some soothing balm for our souls. It is a house fire started by the arson that is the author. Ultimately, the book of Hebrews is a cattle prod, getting us to move. And today, it says we're moving towards the dimensions of our lives where dragons hide. So how does it do that? Look down at Hebrews chapter four, verse, excuse me, chapter, yeah, for, uh, verse 12. It shows us. It's always been, already been read. Verse 12 starts, for, 
Whenever you see that word for, you can read it as if it's saying because. For, because. Why should we strive to enter God's rest? Why should we trust God to the point of stillness? Verse 12, because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Now, if you've been in church for any period of time throughout your entire life, for any amount of time, you've probably very familiar with this verse. This is like every middle school, Bible camp, summer camp verse. Does anybody go to a summer camp where it's like, every year the Bible's a sword? This is what, you guys go to Lifeway Christian Bookstore and they're gonna have big old mugs, the Bible's a sword, or camo t-shirts, carry your sword Bible, whatever it was. I, I served with a pastor one time his whole office was littered with swords and behind every one that was like stapled to the wall, he had a Bible behind it every single time. Sword power, whatever, he was just super into it. The Bible is supposed to be this idea of this big, giant, sharp sword. No, nah, no, 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 no. This concluding argument comes at the end of a chapter which is all about how to receive rest. It's bigger than just a Christian magnet on our fridge. So what in the world does the author mean by the word of God? Okay? Clearly it isn't Bible. Because then the stranger, the author, I mean the Bible wasn't even canonized. It's not been finished. He doesn't know other people writing it around that time. It's not bound in leather and translated. And you know, maybe some of you have the pretty ones with pictures. Nothing, nothing like that. It isn't what he has. The word of God, the way he is using it, is broad. It's all an encompassing phrase. That could be, it's a spoken and written word. It's the good news that verse two talks about in chapter four. It's Psalm 95, which he's been quoting a bunch. It's the words promised back in Exodus into the garden. It's what Christ himself spoke upon. The bottom line is the word of God is a form of revelation that we receive from God, which invokes a response. It's a revelation which invokes a response. So yes, to be fair, we believe that the complete revelation of God is the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with seeing Hebrews 4.12 as speaking of the Bible. But this is why, just so everybody understands, collective church, why all of our discipleship efforts, like revolving planets, go around God's complete revelation. Our discipleship groups, our Sundays, our reading plans, our conversations, it goes around what God has fully revealed. Simply, we are devoted to God's word because of its, just by what it's, because it's God's word. Not Casey's words, not man's word, not the government's word, not Hollywood's word. God's word, and because it shows us God. That is why you're going to see all of our efforts with a biblical emphasis. It mediates and fosters encounters with God. We see him in it. We discover him in it. We find him in it. We savor him in it. And what I love about this book, so we're just going to move us on right now, is it doesn't just tell us blindly the sword Bible. It doesn't just say, believe it. It says, let me show you. The author of Hebrews always says, let me show you how. Let me prove it to you. So look down at verse 12 one more time. Because, or for, the word of God is what? Living and active. Thus, it's not dead and ineffective. This is an extremely unsexy, unpopular thought to have in Los Angeles. That we believe the Bible is living and active. 
not dead, ancient papyrus. The word of God is like its source, living and active. It will accomplish what it sets out to do. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Get this, out of all the imagery that could describe the revelation of God, I mean, out of anything it could be described, the Bible talks about itself many, by many different vast authors this way. A mirror that reveals, a seed that produces, uh, a milk that nourishes, a lamp that shines, a fire that consumes, a hammer that shatters. But its most graphic metaphor goes to the stranger. A sword which pierces. And not just any sword, but a double-edged sword. So the fiercest of all swords. So why double-edged? Why go to the point of double-edged? Well, some believe the two edges are referenced to Old Testament and New Testament. From what we've discussed already, no, probably not. Others say it's to be the way the word speaks of both temporal and eternal matters. Some even believe it's described this way because the Bible has a two-folded result. It saves or it condemns. Or maybe his sharp point, see what I did? Whatever, you guys, forget you. Maybe his point is it has no blunt side. But I tend to fall in the camp which simply believes it's describing its cutting. God's revelation is described, it's, 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 it's cutting effectiveness. Let me read you this verse from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. This is like every preacher's like bread and butter. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, my revelation, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. An effective, double-edged, piercing sword. And what does it pierce? You and I. Has anybody ever been stabbed by a sword before? I have. It was a fork. And it was in, it was in grade school. But it hurt. Right? And there was blood. Ask me later if you want to know the whole story. But this sword doesn't aim to pierce our flesh and blood. What does it say? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. Such surgical, like scalpel imagery here. Almost as if the word of God doesn't just seek to cut our lives or our culture, but transform it and correct it and save it. But in order to understand joints and marrow, soul and spirit, we have to understand that eight-letter D word. Everybody see it? There's a verse behind me. I'm not going to look. Is it behind me, Lily? No. Okay. Well, talk to Ross later. Is 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 it behind me now? Is there an eight-letter word up there that starts with D? Is it daintlies? Is it dazzlers? Is it death cup? Those are all eight letter D words I looked up online. (laughs) No. (laughs) I sat with death cup for like 20 minutes. (laughs) Is the word death cup up there, Brian? No. Our understanding of our quest to find the dragons will be if we open up the word division. That's eight letters, right? Division. This word is used only one other time in the New Testament, and that's actually in the book of Hebrews. But nowhere does this word division means to divide something into two distinct entities, like if there's two entities that are stuck together. That's not what this means. 
We don't have time to get into the conspiracy theories of there's a soul and a spirit. Rather, this is the idea of a dividing up the soul like a butcher would a ham. So everybody thinks there's like this two ideas, soul and spirit, and the sword is the only thing, the word of God's the only thing that can kind of do this. No, no, this is divides it up like you would a pork loin. It quarters it, it weighs it, it divides it. You tracking, right? The stranger does not say that the word divides the soul from the spirit or that it divides between the soul and spirit. This is the same thing as joint and marrow. Joints and marrows are not adjacent to one another if anybody knows anything about body parts. Such a sharp sword is not needed to get in between those and divide those. None of this has anything to do with like anatomical correct precision. Nurses out there, doctors. The point here is that the most inaccessible part of our physical frame is invaded by God. That's what he's getting at. Author Andrew Murray says it this way about Hebrews 4. He goes, it's to show that no aspect of our being is impervious to the penetrating scrutiny of the word of God. And here's what's proof to what Andrew Murray just said. Notice all of the author's examples in just these two verses. It's actually quite astonishing. Verse 12 finishes with, with discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So what we have here is the soul, we have the body, and we have the heart. Nothing of ourselves is inescapable from the revelation from the word of God. The most hidden elements of our physicality are marrow. There's nothing more hidden than our marrow. The most intimate elements of our being, our soul, and the strongest elements of our will and our emotions, that being our heart. Collective church, we're starting to get somewhere, if you're tracking with me. Are we starting to see the dragons in the distance? This double-edged sword is so invasive, it's so intrusive that it pierces to the innermost depths of you and of me. And what does it do to us? What it tells us. It lays us open. I was told by some people not to use the graphic imagery, but I'm going to do it anyway. But really, a lot of what this means is it's like a butcher shop. It's intense imagery of what this can do to us. It lays us open like a patient on the operating table. God as a surgeon and his revelation, his word as the scalpel. The stranger is so graphic that his words should really disorient us. They should bother us. They should go, this doesn't sit right. Why? Because look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We have arrived. Here be dragons. We're there. Okay, so enough about the whole dragon thing. What am I exactly am I talking about when I say that? Practically speaking, when we read or hear the word of God, that's why Sundays in the book of Hebrews, we'll get into this, are so important for us, the preaching of God's word. When we read or hear the word of God, we are to hope and to ask for, to hope and to ask for a piercing effect. A pierce deep enough to show us the truth of our thoughts, our motives, and our sins. It happens when a man or woman, well, I guess you could say, when a man and woman actually do this, it really shows them themselves, their hearts or whatever, their soul, honestly. It shows us who we are honestly. 
So what are your dragons, the hidden parts, the parts unknown, the parts that are hiding you, the parts that stir up fear, the parts we don't want anybody else in, the parts we don't want God in? What are those in you? I have no idea. But that's the point. God does. God knows. And the word searches and exposes and it divides it up again like a pork shoulder. What must go? What must come in? What needs surgery? What needs to be amputated? But let me, I want to make sure this is properly placed in the context of rest. Remember, this is all about rest. After all, this is all about receiving rest. What's at stake is our rest. Eternity is at stake. Hope is at stake. Our future, our faith, future and faith, uh, present faith is at stake. And the only way to enter that rest is believing God, is what we've been seeing thus far. If you want to know more, you're going to have to listen to the past talks from the past two weeks. So believing God in his revelation it's the very same words that he has been saying from Genesis and Exodus. Now, I said that very deliberately because if you guys want to see something so rad, follow me, because this is amazing. This got me so jazzed hands all week. Here it is. It's been said that the locus of the Christian faith can be found in Genesis and Exodus. That being the first two books of the Bible. Creation, slavery, deliverance or purpose, sin, rest. I say this because if you look at the book of Hebrews really closely, you see this laundry cycle that the author uses. From Hebrews 1, he knits together Genesis 1, that being creation. And we've been following the author ever since, if you've noticed. He's gone from creation, he's gone to the Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, to Moses, he talked about Joshua, He's talking about deliverance and now he's talking about rest. So I say all that because with that way, with that frame way or that frame of, a framing of think or thought, excuse me, with, the, with knowing that the strangers using creation imagery or like Genesis Inc., let's read verse 13 with all of that in our thoughts. Read verse 13 one more time with me. And no creature is hidden. No creature. Genesis 1, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So think about it. Especially if you're familiar with the Bible here, but if you think about it, when was mankind at his ultimate rest? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden. Naked, exposed, and unashamed. But how was that rest lost? With the enemy causing doubt by asking did God really say that? Mm. Ooh, can you really trust his word? Can you actually trust God? Bringing the human race to a space of restlessness because trust in God was abandoned. Hopefully we're seeing the connection to our present day realities because the connection is this. We, you, me, we're hardwired to question God. We're hardwired to question God's word. God, did you really say? God, do you really mean for me to move here, for me to say this, for me to be here, for me to do that? God, did you really promise that you're gonna come through in X, Y, and Z? So no wonder when life gets jumbled up and circumstances taking nosedive, most of us are immediately tempted to question God and his promises. Because there's no way, right? We, we would question ourselves. 
We started off this talk by discussing that the first generations of Hebrews decided not to believe. The author's generation of Hebrews are tempted not to believe. And we now have both generations condensed down into what? God, can you really be trusted? That same cheese and that same mousetrap that was for Adam and Eve, for the Hebrews then, and for you and I is exactly the same. That thought, that question, did God really say that? Does God really mean that? Disturbs and destroys our rest. Because how could any of us ever possibly rest? How could any of us ever possibly rest in a God who we don't think cares for us or will provide for us? In the garden, when they stopped trusting and when they stopped obeying, any exposure, any nakedness, any sense of being known was covered. Or a better word would be hidden. Thus launching some sort of like restless machine of what? Of guilt and shame. This is not what God intended. Genesis 2 says this. This is what God intended. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not, were not, were not ashamed. Thus shame and nakedness with many being like emotional dislocation and lack of ease with who we are. Old Testament scholar David Atkinson says, shame is that sense of unease with yourself, the heart of your being. Let's do it one more time. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being, the very place where the word pierces. Now, I think we get this. What, what, if we think about our society or culture, whatever you want to say, I mean, what is the one dream that they say every high school kid has, right? It's walking the halls of your school naked, right? Everybody's like, oh, I had that dream. Maybe you've had it about going to work. You feel exposed. Or what about this? What is every bit of advice somebody gives to the public speaker? Just imagine your audience in their underwear or naked. So, I'm not practicing right now. I'm not doing that. I just want you to know that's really weird. But what is the point? Why say it? What is the point? Imagine them vulnerable to put at ease your vulnerability. This is what nakedness has to do with our society. <laughs> so awkward. And if, it, and if the word of God is allowed to pierce our heart, our inner being, we would see that there's something wrong with what we're carrying, a burden of shame. Thus we fight. If that's true, thus we fight to prove ourselves, the need to affirm ourselves, the need to cover ourselves, the need to keep people from seeing who we really are, the need to protect myself from rejection, the need to fix myself. This basically is a resume for Casey Fritz. Like that's all this is. Supremely the need to keep people on the periphery, including God himself hidden from those unknown territories because there be dragons. You see, what happens vertically between us and God happens horizontally between us and one another. More often than not, if we haven't noticed that, if I'm having issue with so-and-so, it's because that anger or that resentment or that bitterness or whatever it could be, that shame, is because it exists vertically. There's a, there's a book I read in high school called The Human Stain by Philip Roth. Anybody read it? It's a book that no high schooler should ever read, but it was in the library. And it's a book about the human stain, which is this person's metaphor for evil and for sin. 
And the novel's about a man who starts to do well and everybody's urge is to take him down. And at one point, one of his characters starts talking about the inability to do anything about their stain or about their shame. And it says this, she says, the character, she says, it's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defining. The stain that precedes your acts of obedience that encompasses disobedience perplexes all explanation and understanding. I think you know where I'm getting at and where I'm going with this because it's a perfect metaphor for our shame spirals, our sin spirals. As the human stain suggests, what she's getting at, that the voyage to fix oneself only continues to break oneself. The quest to purify oneself only brings more impurity. Friends, this is what the bell, this is the bell that the author has been ringing for four chapters of Hebrews. That rest is about freedom from accomplishment and to be satisfied in his accomplishment. We will never find eternal or present rest in a mode of religion. He is trying, the stranger is trying so badly for these people to see this. Hence, enter the good news. Oh, if you haven't read this verse, just let this sit with you for a moment, especially after the thing we talked about. It's Genesis chapter three, verse eight. I'll read it to you. And they heard, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid, hid, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But look at this. But the Lord God called to the man and woman and said, where are you? Just sit with that. Where are you? At the most uncomfortable of moments in their entire existence, God comes knocking. The whole idea of exposure that God's word has has rendered, it's, it's this idea of, of, of it is laid bare. So when it talks about exposure, it talks about being laid bare. Now this word, how it's rendered, in ancient times, everybody there would have gotten it because it's, um, it's about a wrestler or a boxer who fights like this with her neck open. Show me one boxer or one wrestler in the world who fights like this. No, but that's what it means to be laid bare the most vulnerable area which could deliver a final blow fully exposed. And that's the word we have here. The most vulnerable area, our shame, our hiding, our inner recesses, which are doing this to, hiding it. God is saying, I want that area. That, that's what I want. Not to deliver a final blow, because that is what we protect the most. God is searching for that. God is crying out to that. God is crying out to the deep side and saying, where are you? Where are you? Friends, this is good news. Makes me think of this incredibly relevant and beautiful quote from author Henry Nouwen. I've probably read this quote a thousand times here, but I'm gonna do it again. Where he says, now I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me and to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? 
the dragon territories. And finally, the question is, how am I to love God? Excuse me. And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. That's a quote. Hopefully, we're starting to reframe exposure, not as something we fear, but now as something we desire. Because... God is first on the scene with Adam and Eve, trying to break into their unknown territories. But he doesn't shame them. He doesn't come in with the intent of mocking them. Oh, you ate that? He doesn't do that. He doesn't come in to harm them. But to do what? To bring them home, as Nouwen said. To bring us home. To enter into rest. Friends, this has the power to change our lives if we let the word the word pierce. And that very word, word, it's really lost in our time. The early Greek philosophers developed a concept called the logos. It is where, the English, where we get the English word logic. So Casey, why does that matter at all? Bear with me. Well, in the Greek, that logos literally is translated the word, but has a secondary meaning, which is the reason. It's a reason for life. So knowing that, let me read to you something rather beautiful from the New Testament. And the word became flesh. And the reason for life became flesh. And the logic of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus Christ is the logic of God. In other words, he is the reason for life. So in other words, if you really wanted to, you could read Hebrews chapter four like this. Jesus Christ is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, so on and so forth. John, who wrote this about Jesus, it takes him three years to try to conceive this idea. He does not even want us to give us three chapters. He wants us immediately to get this idea. John calls Jesus the word. John calls Jesus the reason because he had to come and finally see that in his, in his like innermost being, soul, body, and heart, that God's word, God's logic, the reason for life is ultimate in Jesus. And if we come to know the logic of God as Christ, then we see this God is continuing to cry out what he started to say in the garden, which was, where are you? Come out of hiding. Look how far I've come for you. That's what the logic is in Jesus Christ. Look how far God says I've come for you. Where are you? Do you see me? I am here. Where are you? I've come for you. You didn't find me. I've come to fix what you can't fix. I've come to purify what you can't. Can you trust me now? I would just encourage us that any of the times we struggle to really trust in the Lord going to be our best bet to think about Jesus. Again, one of the most comforting thoughts for me is there is no place too dark, too gross, too dragon-filled, too disgusting, too vile that God won't go when he completely proved the distance he'll go with the cross. He completely proved the distance he'll go with with the empty tomb. This is the good news Hebrews 4, 1 and 2 talks about. I'll read it to you. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, let us fear, remember that, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. 
for good news came to us just as to them. For the good news came to us just as it came to them. So, I have no idea where this will land with you today, in this moment, in response time, later tonight, in five years. But do not leave this place without doing work. We're here for that reason. See, look at verse 12 of chapter 4. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That word discerning means judging. Now, it doesn't mean condemn, it means assess. Divides of our thoughts, it forces us to see and ask is this vain? Is this right? Is this pure? Is this holy? Is this Christ like? Is this evil? Is this forgiveness? Is this worship? Friends, I will not lie to you. This whole laid bare spirituality is painful. Dare I say, for some of us, it might be the most painful thing you will ever go through. It pulls back the curtain of our souls, yes. It opens the veil of our thoughts and intentions, yes. It shines a light in the darkness, yes. And it forces us to deal honestly with what is hidden deeply within But we all know if we begin to truly trust God, and I want to give this as sort of a diagnostic, we will begin to know if we truly trust God, if we invite in the dividing, if we invite in the division, if we invite in the sword. So it is painful, but we know we are heading in the right direction when we begin to long for it, as the psalmist says. Let me read this to you. The psalmist says, search me. The psalmist says, pierce me. Oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way within me and lead me in the way of everlasting. 